You are listening to the MetaPropCast, the podcast of innovation and technology in real estate. Our guest today is Bradley Tusk, founder and CEO of Tusk Holding. And don't forget to subscribe to the MetaPropCast on SoundCloud, YouTube, Twitter, and metaprop.org. We're speaking today with Bradley Tusk, founder and CEO of Tusk Holdings. I'm your host, Phil Russo. Bradley, it's great to have you. Thank you for having me on, Phil. We hear hear this term a lot these days, venture capitalist. 20 years ago, I don't think most of us knew what that was. What is a venture capitalist? (laughs) It's a great question and one that probably people don't ask enough. Um, At least in my interpretation or how I see my work as a venture capitalist, it's that we invest in pre-IPO companies. And traditionally, when you say startups, it means... um, really technical applications. So certain types of software, certain types of hardware. And, you know, the tech sector used to be things like Apple or IBM or Microsoft that were effect- you know, effectively making computers or programs for computers. Now, in reality, the startup world really just means companies that haven't gone public yet. Because ultimately, you know, the vast majority of new startups or in existing industries like transportation, or energy, or food, or education, or healthcare, or gaming, or whatever it is. And yeah, of course they're tech-enabled, but it'd be impossible to create any sort of new business today that isn't tech-enabled in in some form or another. And so really what startups are are just new businesses in lots of different industries where people say, I've got a better way to do something, to take an existing product or service and do it differently and more efficiently and more attractively. Um, and if you give me money, uh, I can build this thing out and be successful. And the venture capitalists are the people who give them money. You're a man of many pursuits uh, in your venture capital world and beyond. Uh, and you, as you've said, are interested and in look at a wide range of technology. How does PropTech measure up against the overall world of technology startups? What inning are we in? You know, it's interesting. There's there's two ways to look at PropTech, which give you two different answers, right? So PropTech has investments in companies that are specifically working on physical real estate assets. I think the answer is really early, you know, second inning, let's call it. Um, However... I view PropTech a little more broadly. So I would say two of my best investments are in Handy and Lemonade. Now, neither of them are technically companies that work in physical infrastructure, but Handy uh, is a platform where um, all types of handymen and cleaning professionals and others can connect to consumers and ultimately fix your apartment, clean your apartment. You know, wire your stereo, hook up your TV, you know, clean the bathroom, whatever it is. Uh, And so um, in my mind, that's PropTech. Lemonade is a brand new insurance company that provides homeowner and renters insurance solely through a platform. It's a totally digital insurance company. They provide the product for a fraction of what most traditional insurance companies charge. And they can do that because... They don't have offices and agents and brokers and Super Bowl ads. Um, they're just able to effectively cut all of that out and do the whole thing digitally and pass those savings on to the consumer. 
And so, you know, in my view, that's prop tech as well. It's actually what we're more interested in uh, over here. And that's probably more like the fourth inning. So what percentage uh, would you say of your investments are in prop tech as you define it? You know, probably about, about 15 percent. Um, but I, I think that will continue to grow. Um, so, uh, look, a people's physical assets and Airbnb figure this out better than anyone else uh, are usually uh, the most valuable thing they own and what they'll spend the most amount of money on to protect and take care of and increase and advance and, you know, platform services that can help them do that can be very valuable. And so, you know, we, we're in a bunch of them and we're going to keep looking at it. When you're assessing a startup for investment, what are the factors uh, you look at? What would you tell PropTech founders are the most important things for you in assessing the long-term success of their startup? Sure. I mean, a few things. First and foremost, and this is going to sound like what probably every VC will tell you, it's the team, right? It's the founder, the CEO, the, the team around her, him, um, because ultimately if they are relentless and brilliant and creative um, and they've got a, started with a half a decent idea, they're going to succeed. On the flip side, if they have the best idea in the world, but they're just not uh, hardworking enough or not creative enough or not resilient enough, they're not going to succeed. Um, I've worked with Uber since almost the very beginning, and I've been working with Travis for six years now. And one of the reasons Uber is so successful is just because of him. His personality is so unbelievably relentless and so driving, and his both ability to think about things in an analytical way and a creative way is so unique that that's really what makes Uber such an amazing company. Um, so first and foremost is the founder the, the, and, and the management team. The second thing, of course, is you know the idea itself. Um, does it make sense? Is it intrinsically appealing? Is it a really clever new way of doing something? And if so, why? And I find that if I have to talk myself into it, it's probably a good red flag that I shouldn't want to be in it in the first place. Um, the third would be you know the addressable market. What are we talking about here? If it's a you know market that ultimately is tens of billions of dollars in transactions every year, then even getting a small sliver of that could build a very profitable company. If it's much smaller, then you know unless you somehow have a way to take over and own the entire thing, it, you know just the odds of success are a lot lower. So that's third. The, the fourth would be for us because our focus tends to be first helping companies with their political and regulatory challenges, and then deploying capital into those companies when we really feel good about them. You know, what is the political problem at hand? Is it solvable? Can we solve it? And if we do solve it, what does it mean for the company? If there's only an ancillary benefit, then I think to us, there's no real reason for us to be involved in the first place. But if it's existential to them, so for example, for Lemonade, you know, we had to get them their licenses so they could operate. And obviously there was a lot of bureaucratic resistance and we had to use, you know, a, a more aggressive approach to get that done. That's existential. For FanDuel, which is not a prop tech company, but their ability to operate in every state after each state, you know, launched various forms of investigations or actions to look at how to regulate daily fantasy sports, our ability to pass legislation to allow them to be able to operate is existential. For Uber, you know, stopping the taxi medallion owners from trying to regulate them out of business is existential. Um, so, you know, for us, that's really critical is, uh, is the work that we're going to do really going to accrete to the bottom line? Is it really necessary for that company to be able to be successful? And so all of that, and then there are other things, what, what's the current landscape, who else is doing this, what state are they in, what's the valuation, who are the other investors, uh, you know, so there's a bunch of other factors as well. So we'll look at all of that, um, use a looser screen to decide which companies to work with on an equity of a services basis, because in that case, 
we're investing our time, our expertise, but not capital. And it's, so there's no sunk cost. We can get out of it. And then obviously use a much more rigorous approach to determine whether to deploy capital in those companies. You are listening to the Meta Propcast. We're talking with Bradley Tusk, founder and CEO of Tusk Holdings. It's Wednesday, December 21st, 2016. Bradley, uh, in addition to your outstanding private sector pursuits, you held many major positions in the public sector, including Deputy Governor of Illinois, Campaign Manager and Special Advisor to Mayor Bloomberg in New York, Communications Director to U.S. Senator Chuck Schumer from New York. How did those experiences affect your view of the public sector versus the private sector, particularly when we're looking at entrepreneurism and prop tech development? You know, it, it, quite, quite a bit, obviously, it really was was key to, to the way I look at the world right now, to the way I look at the intersection of technology, regulation, and politics. And I think most importantly for the work that I do now, the work that we're talking about, it's really two questions. One, what's the appropriate role of government regulation in society? You know, where should government regulation take place and where should it be aggressive? And where is it overreach and really not necessary? Or where is it potentially even just a manifestation of entrenched interests trying to protect what they have rather than a real governmental reason to do something. So that's that's one. And then two, you know, really, I think through all those experiences, I learned what are the real factors that motivate decision making in government? So how can we why ultimately if, if someone supports a bill or opposes a bill or proposes or supports a, a regulation or anything else, why are they really doing it? What are the factors that went into it? And what will ultimately enable them to change their view, right? And that's a combination of carrot and stick. Um, the latter allows us to run typically pretty effective campaigns for our portfolio companies to solve a host of regulatory problems. Um, the former, you know, helps me think about um, what kind of company should we be in? How do we approach this particular marketplace? How do we approach, you know, regulation around this? So, for example, at Airbnb. I would argue that on the, the second point, how to handle the political process, their work has been horrific. Uh, they have been guilty of political negligence and malpractice from day one. However, I'm really sympathetic on the first point, which is, is there really a strong government need to regulate Airbnb in the first place? Look, if, if you're talking about basic health and safety issues for people who are paying to stay somewhere, yeah, I think you can make some case. But at the end of the day, government can't be all things to all people. It has a finite amount of resources. And if you just take New York City's recent example, you know, there's been a lot of very tragic reports lately of deaths by child abuse. And the city's Administration for Children's Services, which is the agency charged with protecting children, has fallen down on the job. If you said to me, would you rather have the city spend money on more ACS caseworkers or more people in the Division of Special Enforcement to bust Airbnb hosts, I would say spend it on protecting kids. Uh, that's a much more important role for government than determining whether or not someone's staying on the couch or in a bedroom and they're there for three nights or eight nights or 12 nights. Um, so, you know, it, it, it really is de determined by both what the role should be and then how skilled you are in making the case so that the role is not government regulatory overreach and so that your startup can ultimately do what it needs to do. Is Airbnb a client of Tusk Holdings? They're not. Um, and so both my criticism and praise is, is pretty effective and independent. Um, obviously, they're, they're one of the mega heavyweights in, in the startup space. Um, and I respect the concept a lot. It's really smart. 
Um, it's a great way to have a platform-based company because all they're doing is connecting buyers and sellers and taking a piece. And the only real threat in many ways is regulation. It's, you know, hotel industry advocates, hotel unions, affordable housing advocates saying this potentially cuts into our market share. We're going to use political power to push Airbnb back. And they've done that quite effectively. Um, but beyond that, there's really very little stopping Airbnb from whatever they want to achieve. On the federal level, as the Trump administration takes over, many experts are anticipating a tsunami of deregulation. What's your view on that happening, and how will it affect investments and startups, especially in prop tech? Yeah, so uh, a few things. So one, overall, I very much agree with that assessment. I think that um, not just from where it is today, but I think you also have to look at where would it have been at Clinton won instead of Trump. And I think in a lot of different cabinet agencies that regulate startups in different in different forms, you would have had appointments turned over to the Sanders Warren wing of the Democratic Party, who have a very harsh view of startups and technology, and really would have gone out of their way to impose new regulations on a variety of different startups in a variety of different sectors. So it's not only will it likely be less than what you see um, right now in, uh, in the Obama administration, but I think they really dodged the bullet for what would be uh, what would happen under Clinton. Um, from an overall market standpoint, you know, I think that it's probably going to be pretty favorable. I know this isn't um, politically correct to say, and, and just for the record, I voted for and supported and donated to Clinton, but um, if you do cut corporate tax rates and individual tax rates and capital gains rates. And if the government does invest up to a trillion dollars in infrastructure spending, you're going to see a very, very robust market. And that's going to encourage a lot of M&A and a lot of IPOs. Um, and so I think from a startup perspective, especially if you're a later stage startup starting to look at an IPO, um, it should be very advantageous. Um, in terms of prop tech specifically, you know, look, you have a real estate developer as president. I think he's very uh, sympathetic to the needs of the real estate industry. Um, I don't really know firsthand how much in his own projects he's taken advantage of different technologies that can allow construction to be done more efficiently, um, you know, savings on different ways to monitor energy usage, water usage, things like that. But look, say what you want about Trump, he's clearly a smart man uh, and he clearly understands the real estate business. And so I think that while, you know, most regulation of real estate tends to happen on a local municipal level and not on a federal level, whether it's different types of tax credits for affordable housing or different ways to spur construction tech and prop tech or just generally lower tax rates, it should be pretty good. Uh, in the area of plugging our own product, uh, recently Metaprop NYC came out with our Q4 20. Uh, 16 Global Prop Tech Confidence Index, which is a mouthful. It showed high confidence in the market from VCs and startup founders. What's your near-term and long-term view of the prop tech startup world? And will we see a flurry of M&As now that companies like VTS and Hightower have merged? Yeah, I mean, I think that, that merger is, is fantastic. And the, the VTS guys, I don't know the Hightower people, but I, I do know the VTS guys a little bit, and, and some of my team know them really well. They're incredibly impressive, so I was really pleased to see that happen. Um, I, I think the biggest challenge from a macro perspective for PropTech is it's still not quite um, 
understood as much as you might like by the major VCs, right? In part because a lot of them are still based in the Valley. And while obviously real estate prices in, in the Valley in San Francisco are just as high as New York, it's, you know, New York real estate is like a religion, right? Um, and I don't think it's necessarily as much the case out there. And so there, there's a little bit, I think, of, of a lack of full appreciation and understanding for a, a lot of prop tech, especially construction tech, especially different ways to sort of reduce, you know, ancillary costs like heating and water and security and whatnot. Um, and a lot of the companies that are really great are based here in New York. And so I think the, the technology is there, the entrepreneurs are there. I think the market conditions are gonna be really good. Um, I think it's things like Metaprop that raise the profile of the prop tech sector that really help get some of these companies on the radar screen of major VCs, uh, and that's what allows uh, for real investment to occur and for the sector to really flourish. So to sum up, uh, would such mergers uh, now make it more clear to VCs what PropTech is about? You know, I, the, the, the mergers certainly help. I think what they show is that there's real economic upside and opportunity. Um, I also think mergers are going to be generally easier to achieve in a Trump Justice Department and FTC than they probably were under Obama or would have been under Clinton. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think it all helps. I think that what you have in real estate a little bit is this divide between traditional real estate and prop tech, right? And when you think of traditional real estate, you think of kind of the, the barons of revenue, which are basically really old, rich white men. Uh, and they do not seem in any way like tech entrepreneurs. And they're not, you know, although they're very savvy, impressive people. And then prop tech is a much younger, much more diverse uh, group of entrepreneurs, but they're not as much the face of real estate. And so I, I think part of it is just really changing the perceptions of who and what real estate is, because, you know, those of us who are here in New York City and have an interest in prop tech can easily distinguish between, you know, uh, Jerry Spire and Zach Aarons, right? But I think... Um, if, if you're in Palo Alto, those distinctions aren't quite as apparent. Um, and that's where uh, I think there's probably still an obligation by the prop tech sector here to continue that kind of public education campaign. We have been speaking with Bradley Tusk, founder and CEO of Tusk Holdings. Bradley, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for your time. Phil, thanks so much for having me on. I appreciate it. This is Philip Russo. Thank you for listening.